0: I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Michelle Nighthouse will join us to discuss Beloved Beasts. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the modern conservation movement wouldn't be one without the lives and ideas of the people who built it. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Michelle Nyehouse. Ms. Nyehouse is the project editor of The Atlantic, a contributing editor at High Country News, an award-winning reporter whose work has been published in National Geographic's New York Times Magazine. She's co-editor of the Science Writer's Handbook and has penned the new book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Ms. Nyehouse, thank you for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Well, it is certainly a great book you've put together here, Uh, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, where you recount the history of the modern conservation movement. Why you decide to put the book together?
1: Well, I've been thinking about a book like this for a very long time, probably ever since I was assistant on wildlife research projects when I was just out of college. I majored in biology in college. And in the mid-90s, I supported myself by moving around the Southwest, helping out on mostly on projects that were studying threatened and endangered species. So that put me right in the middle of some of the very heated political debates over those species that were happening at the time and are still happening. And I was very struck by the arguments that were happening over those species because they concerned such basic questions of, you know, why are these species important? Whose responsibility are they? And like most people interested in conservation, I had a sense that People in the past had thought about these big questions, but I didn't have a sense of the conservation movement as a movement that had changed over time and developed ideas over time. So I I continued to be interested in conservation history. and, And after becoming a journalist and writing about these issues for a while, I thought it would be helpful to try to put the famous names that I think most people who are familiar with conservation know, Rachel Carson, maybe Aldo Leopold, to put those names in the context of, of this tradition, of this movement that has been going on now for well over 100 years.
0: start out the book with the West and the plight of the Bison. Do, do you think it is the case that in the West of America is more aware of these types of conservation issues because of the history of the development of the United States?
1: Perhaps, and maybe because in the West there are... Just to generalize, I don't mean to dismiss in any, in any way the great habitat that still exists on the east coast of North America, but there are big uninterrupted pieces of habitat that are very valuable to many species in the West. And so I think there's perhaps a sense among many communities here that, 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 that conservation is still a very live issue. You know, it, it's something that people are arguing about every day. It, these questions are still unresolved in many senses.
0: Were you surprised besides the big names that were part of the conservation movement of just how many different contributed in different ways and with different motives to the movement?
1: Yeah, conservation history had been an interest of mine for a long time, but there were still people who were new to me when I began this research, so I ended up profiling in the book and I of course I know no one could fit the history of conservation into any kind of reasonably sized book, so I had to think about which people I thought would represent some of the most important turning points in the movement. And so, I thought pretty carefully about who I would include and who I would, you know, go into some detail about. And so, it was yes, surprising to discover that some of the really important intellectual leaps or turning points in the movement had been accomplished by people I didn't even whose names I hadn't even heard about as someone who was interested in the history of conservation. The one person that I did know of but didn't know too much about was Julian Huxley, who I knew mostly as of his younger brother, Aldous Huxley, the novelist who wrote the book Brave New World, the Dystopian Classic Brave New World, and I knew vaguely that he had a brother who was a biologist, but as it turned out, Julian Huxley was this very interesting, very complicated. Figure who was right at the heart of conservation's turn toward international conservation. the modern conservation movement started out in North America and Europe, and then in the mid twentieth century really started to understand and become interested in conserving wildlife in on other continents, primarily africa and those early efforts traveled colonial paths and as such were created a lot of problems and had a lot of unintentional consequences. But the vision was an important one, the idea that, oh, we, we need to be protecting species that we don't necessarily live nearby or get to see. And Julian Huxley was right in the middle of that. And he was, you know, despite his many complexities and, and despite the complexities of what he accomplished, I think he was a very important figure.
0: His work spawned the World Wildlife Fund.
1: That's right. And the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which which still is really the central source that we have for data about species around the world that might be in trouble. It's I mean, we take these sources of information for granted today, but not that long ago it was very possible to I mean, there are still many species that we know nothing about, but it was very possible for a well known species to have no data whatsoever widely available about its conservation status. People didn't know, is it declining, is it bouncing back, what does it need from us in terms of protection? And Julian Huxley was instrumental in establishing that organization, which still needs more funding and needs more support, as many of these organizations always do, but it's the most important intergovernmental organization dedicated to conservation today. And Huxley was also so important because they're so interesting because this was ongoing conversation with his brother, who was, of course, really interested in the future of the world in very different ways. And so they both had we just were men of great imagination, and uh, their lifelong conversation was is fascinating to read about.
0: In more recent times, the conservation movement has had issues defining itself in a way.
1: Yes. In recent years, perhaps in the last 20 or so years, conservation has had a bit of a, an internal argument over whether it's protecting species from people or protecting species for people. some people argue well we need to we need to be showing the practical value of other species to people for instance you know that they that their their presence indirectly provides people with clean water or healthy forests and other people within the conservation movement say no we need to be emphasizing the fact that these species have value for their own sake. And that if we just look at every species as as something that is useful to us, then we might be less likely to protect species that are perhaps dangerous or troublesome, but still important to the ecosystem. And and to me that, I mean, it's an interesting intellectual argument, but I, I feel like the answer is really kind of obvious, which is that most people want to protect species for both reasons. I mean, I know I feel that in myself appreciate the value of species for their own sake, but I also want my daughter to have a world where she has access to clean water and healthy forests, and biodiversity is important for those very practical reasons so I mean, to me, the question and I do see the conservation i do see the conservation movement as starting to grapple with this in in really productive ways to me. The real problem is how do we reduce the short-term cost of conservation for people of all walks of life? Because there are always are costs of conservation. People have sometimes tried to claim, oh, conservation is a win-win situation. But there are almost always short-term costs to protecting the species that you live alongside. And I think community-led conservation in Africa and elsewhere around the world has had some really remarkable successes in restoring people's connection to ordinary people's connection to the species they live alongside and making it possible for them to protect them for the long term and also helping them to share in some of the, you know, abundant long-term benefits of conservation. So I see that development, that kind of grassroots conservation, people-powered conservation as being a really hopeful development and really where the future of conservation lies if, if we hope to have conservation be more than a special interest and something that really is practiced by all kinds of people around the world, which I think is where conservation has always wanted to go and and should go.
0: And there's some very sobering statistics in there about how many species are going extinct. Do you have a sense of whether or not these efforts for whatever reason can succeed?
1: Yeah, I don't, in writing this book, I, I don't want to minimize in any way the very real threats that other species are facing, mostly because of our actions, because of human actions as a species. People often ask me if I feel hopeful, and, and I I guess the answer is yes, but I, I think I feel hopeful in the sense that I feel that there are very real and numerous opportunities. I don't know if humans will take advantage of those opportunities, but I think that for too long... conservation movement and maybe people in general have tended to think, well, perhaps humans just aren't capable of protecting other species. Perhaps this idea of the tragedy of the commons is just inevitable where humans are just programmed to use up all the available resources until they're gone and and we're really fighting a losing battle against that instinct. But research shows that the tragedy of the commons is not at all inevitable and that there are human societies from time immemorial have come up with ways of sharing resources very successfully. And and I think I mentioned community-led conservation. That is an explicit effort to revive those systems and develop new ones so that people can live productively alongside other species. And those are such encouraging results. And, And the conservation movement, even many inside the conservation movement, aren't aware of those or haven't embraced those as the direction in which the movement should be going. And that's a shame, and I think it's a real opportunity that the conservation movement has and that that we as a species have to really take advantage of our ability to live within ecosystems without destroying them. We know we're capable of it. We just have to do, this, do what needs to be done in order to change our ways.
0: Certainly a tough task <laughs> in front of us there.
1: Yes, tough but not impossible.
0: <laughs> well, after reading the book, what would you like them to take home regarding the history of the conservation movement?
1: Well. Conservation is often presented as a heroic but losing battle, and what I learned from studying the the history of it is that, yes, there have been many losses and there have been many mistakes of many kinds, but if you look at the broad arc of the movement, people have built on each other's ideas, they've learned from their mistakes, they've made really remarkable progress, and there are many species that we live with today that we would not know that we would not have encountered in life had it not been for the actions of conservationists in the past. So I think we have learned a lot. We know what to do. And in that sense, it it feels like a very hopeful story to me. And I hope people will see the potential in what's been accomplished so far and know that this is not a gloom and doom story. It's It's a story of losses and a story of great challenges, but it is... I think at its heart, a hopeful story.
0: Talking with Ms. Michelle Nyhouse, the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Ms. Nyhouse, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.